what we really tried to focus on last year and we continue to focus is staff resilience so that we're sustaining our current highly qualified educators so that when we shift back into like a normal school year that we still have that group of individuals at our school. Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. This is Annalise Corbin, Chief Goddess of the Past Foundation and your host. We hear frequently that the global education system is broken. In fact, we spend billions of dollars trying to fix something that's actually not broken at all, but rather irrelevant. It's obsolete. A hundred years ago, it functioned fine. So let's talk about how we reimagine, rethink, and redesign our educational system. So today on Learning Unboxed, we have a special treat because we are going back to one of my old stomping grounds to have a conversation about um, wicked crazy innovation that's happening in what I believe to be one of the most beautiful places on earth. And so with that, we'll just jump right in because we're going to have a conversation about the Palouse Prairie School. And joining us to um, have that conversation is Janiel Brannon and Erin Corwin, um, both of the Palouse Prairie school. So ladies, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So just to set a little bit of context for our listeners, for folks, uh, Janiel is the executive director of the Palouse Prairie School and just really, really high level of the Palouse Prairie School is an accredited um, EL education school, which is formerly known as Expeditionary Learning, which we've talked about on this program before for those who might be familiar with the uh, Expeditionary Learning um, sort of um, ideology. And and through that, so the school believes that when students and teachers are engaged in work that is challenging, adventurous, and meaningful, learning and achievement can flourish. So Janelle, or Janelle, I'm sorry, my apologies. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Absolutely. And joining um, uh, the program as well is Erin Corwin. And Erin, actually, um, I love the bio that, that came over uh, for Erin because it basically says, I've done just about everything that one could do at this school. Um, over the 10 years of, of time that she has been there, um, she has been an intervention teacher, a kindergarten teacher, uh, middle school math teacher, data and assessment coordinator, and most recently a teaching and learning specialist. So Erwin, welcome to the program as well. Thanks. <laughs> All right. So ladies, let's get started with the really sort of high level sort of components, I guess, if you will. Um, so Janiel, I would really like you to sort of share with our listeners who come from all over the world, set the context. So what the heck is the Palouse Prairie School and why was it necessary? Well, we were founded in 2009 by a group of parents that really wanted this specific model of education in our area. I think that was a focus because there's there's own children weren't being very successful in the traditional setting. So we had one member in particular that saw it through the five years of trying to get this school in place. Um, I was one of the founding teachers mm -hmm. in 2009, so I did help start the school. But there was just this intention of providing this specific model of education, this expeditionary learning model, which is now known as um, an EL education school, um, with really this focus of providing students this 
like real world um, experience in learning um, content. So our school is really grounded in project-based learning, um, developing character, um, and providing um, some outdoor learning experiences that also support their character development. So that was the reason why it was originally founded is just individuals needing that in this area. I would say that all the schools in the area are really good considering that we're we're near two universities, mm-hmm. the nine miles of each other. So I feel like we, the Palouse in general provides um, good education, but I think that in general, this specific model was desired by families. Um, and since 2009, we started out with a K-4 program and now we're at a K-8 program with 190 students. Wow. So all of that took place after I left the Palouse. Um, So the Palouse Prairie School didn't exist at all Um, when I was there. I got my PhD from the University of Idaho. So that's my connection for our listeners to the conversation that we're having is it's uh, a part of the world that is just absolutely amazing. So Erin, let's talk about that just a little bit, right? Because of the fact that this is an EL school and for our listeners who've heard us talk about expeditionary learning before, place to some extent really, really matters. And it lends itself to the type of education that's possible in a place that can be fully immersive for students. And in particular, the Palouse really sort of um, personifies that. So let's talk about that just a little bit and share with our listeners why this particular place as it relates to this school? Gosh, that's a great question. So I think Janelle kind of touched on a little bit of that in that um, we were a university town. um, And so I think there is a lot of ideas and ideologies and philosophies coming into our community that maybe wouldn't be typical for a rural Idaho environment. So I think we have this like kind of beautiful synergy between a really invigorating natural landscape, the university and all the culture there, and then just a really thriving community. I mean, you said it before we, (laughs) before when we were chatting, it's, it's a place that people want to stay because there is such a strong sense of community here and a sense that, that individuals have agency and that we can be change makers um, and make our little part of the world um, a better place to be. And I think that feeling is just everywhere in our school. Um, and so I think it's, it's kind of this gift from Moscow that then we get to give back to Moscow because our students are so engaged in, in what's happening in our local community and supporting what's happening here too. Yeah, absolutely. And so Janiel, let's talk a little bit about that component around the fact that Moscow is really unique, and you mentioned it because there's two universities within nine miles of each other. And even back when I was a student there, I mean that was one of those those components that um, you you could feel in the community every day, right? You could you could sort of feel the push and pull, the 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 wonderful pieces as well as the perplexing pieces tied to the fact that most university communities. It's singular or maybe in in urban areas where you've got multiples. But the reality is in rural settings, um, the communities that have universities in them, you know, the university takes up a lot of the identity 
of a community. And yet in Moscow, you are so close to Pullman, nine miles, um, that what that means is you've, you've got this interesting dichotomy. And I'm curious as much as anything else about sort of how does that play in as it relates to sort of the some of the early structures of the schools and the families that got involved, because presumably, even though your families, I assume, live in Idaho for a variety of reasons, actually physically live there, but their families work in multiple ecosystems, um, live and work in multiple ecosystems. How does that play out as it relates to some of the decision-making early on for the school? Um, similar to what Aaron was saying, I, we had a lot of professors yeah. really focused on starting this school. So that original board that started Plus Prairie were from Washington State University and University of Idaho with a deep level of knowledge related to education and this vision for what the school could be. And several of those members stayed on that board over time to help support the school. Um, they did all of the hiring related, it, the initial hires for the school um, and the director. So I felt like because we have that depth of knowledge from the universities that that actually helped develop the school mm -hmm. and the vision and the research behind what this model could um, could become. And, you know, being a charter school in the state of Idaho, I think that they also understood that we were providing a model of education that not just for students that live in Moscow, but also for students that live anywhere in the state of Idaho. So we have mm -hmm. a diverse population of students in some ways um, coming from other rural towns nearby. So students are commuting to the school. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How, just out of curiosity, what's the greatest distance that a student commutes? I would say probably 20 miles. Okay. All right. So it's not insignificant for families that are making the choice for their children to attend the school. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Erin, share a little bit with our listeners, um, since you've had so many different roles um, in the school, which I love, um, and um, share with just a little bit with our listeners, sort of, sort of the expeditionary learning model, right? So we've talked about it on the program, but listeners don't always listen to every episode, which they did. Um, but um, so just sort of set the stage um, for what that is. What does that mean? And why in particular was that chosen? Mm-hmm. So expeditionary learning, it's now EL, same same idea, but a shift in name. I mean, it was originally born out of um, a partnership between Harvard School of Ed and Outward Bound. So at its roots, it has, I guess the Outward Bound piece is just these like really powerful components of um, agency, self-directed learning, connecting with the natural world. Um, the idea of like this primacy of self-discovery that unless you're put in challenging situations, you don't really know what you're capable of. Um, and then, so it's like, that's part of the foundation. And then I feel like that Harvard piece is like, what are the best practices in education based on the research and how can we translate that research into something that's really actionable for teachers? So I feel like that's sort of the, the roots of what expeditionary learning is. And now... Um, the EL framework exists at over 200 schools in the U.S. And our school is one of 38 in that network that's credentialed, meaning that we are sort of implementing the model at a high level and um, could be seen sort of as a mentor for other schools. And the focus 
a kind of the current focus or framework for thinking about how to um, kind of keep the roots of expeditionary learning as we sort of move forward in, in the world is this looking at three dimensions of student achievement and naming that the mastery of knowledge and skills is a really important component to a student's education, but it's not the only important component. And that character development, both in terms of how students relate to each other and, and how they show up as learners every day, um, and also the sort of the creation of, of meaningful, high quality, authentic work are just as important as mastery of knowledge and skills. And I think that piece of, of exhibitionary learning or EL is what really drew me to the school. And I think is what drew those, like that founding group of board members to this model, because it, it kind of leveled out this idea of character as an afterthought or like authentic work as an afterthought. And really we need to, you know, teach kids reading and writing and mathematics. And it said, actually that's important, but these other things are just as important. And here's a way to do that in the classroom instead of just saying like, we believe in it. So I think the EL network really supports its school in providing the, the translation from the philosophy into what's happening day-to-day in classrooms. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we work with a, a past a number of different um, EL schools over the years. Um, and it's one of the pieces that I really, really like the most about it is the fact that it does in fact recognize that we can take all those components of the, the environment in which the school is in, the people that can become involved in it and we can really mesh those in such a way that we lend importance across all of the learning aspects. Um, I I really have always appreciated that component um, of the work. Um, So Janiel, talk to me a little bit about how you ensure teachers who come to the school and granted all schools have very rigorous hiring um, um, processes and you're vetting people, but once folks get there, especially to school settings that are not the norm and I'm going to preface this just a little bit. We'll probably circle around this two or three times, right? Mm-hmm. That are not the norm of how teacher prep programs prepare teachers to come in and be part of a school environment. That is often one of the things that I hear the most um, coming out of in- innovative school experiences is that, you know, we have to do a fair amount of work, even with really highly qualified candidates to ensure that they can hit the ground running and understand all those pillars that Aaron was just talking about. And that they they not just use them, but that they foundationally and fundamentally believe them as well. How do you do that? How do you ensure that that culture, if you will, amongst your educators? Well, you started with first kind of already named it. I do have a really rigorous hiring process mm-hmm. that's been developed over time to make sure that we're finding the right candidate to integrate into our school. Um, And even if you are a highly experienced teacher, once you enter into an EL Mm -hmm. school, any EL school across the nation, um, it can be really, really challenging and overwhelming to understand this model and also understand how to implement it right away. So, I mean, first and foremost, we try to build a really safe staff culture, like a really connected culture where teachers feel comfortable to ask for help. They feel supported by their colleagues. Um, And we're refining it every year to make it feel more supportive. It's part of the reason why Aaron's position is in place, which is new to us this year. But we start with a lot of professional development 
both um, off-site and on-site. So we'll, I'll try to send new staff members to EEL um, conferences. So we invest probably close to five to $10,000 of initial perf- initial investment for professional development for our new staff. Um, and then we gather weekly as a staff to connect and continue to build a positive staff culture and provide professional development that's um, modeled how the professional development is modeled for them, how we would expect to see it in the classroom as well. Mm -hmm. So we're also at at the leadership level providing um, research-based practices as models within the professional development. Um, We have teacher mentoring. So we've assigned teachers to work with those new staff members to provide additional support Am I missing anything, Erin? I guess I just reiterate the the intention and the time that's put into um, helping new staff and really all staff continue to connect with each other as professionals, as learners, as people. And that means really intentional space for that. So when Janelle talks about our weekly meetings, our weekly professional development meeting, development meetings, it's not just like, we sit down and then we're into content, right? Like we are taking time to have our own crew meeting as a staff crew to um, connect with each other, to build our own understanding of sort of where we can grow in our own character um, and, and then reflect on how it's all going. And I think Janiel's commitment to creating this space for that for teachers um, and for all of our staff is what really supports new staff feeling okay to say, I need help, or this isn't making sense to me, or like, what is this new acronym that I've never heard before? And I think over time, you know, those relationships that we develop with each other um, really boost new staff and and I help them feel like they belong here yeah, uh, so that they can then help their students feel that they belong in their classrooms too. Yes. Super, super important. And I can't tell you how many times, you know, in the work that we've done with a variety of different schools that we've heard um, from teachers in particular that, you know, one of the things that they don't have is, you know, an ongoing support mechanism after onboarding has happened, right? So that's a very common thing that happens, especially um, in innovative schools, because we get so wrapped up in the innovative part of the idea that we forget long-term that, you know, we, we, have to do some work to make sure that we are able to stay um, within that sort of mission and vision at the same time that we want it to be innovative and to evolve over time. And so um, I'm, I'm thrilled for you to be able to share the intentionality of the way that you're doing that. I certainly appreciate both, um, you know, the, the time, effort, and thought um, from a resource standpoint in terms of that onboarding process because it's um, critically important. Um, so Janiel, share with us just a little bit. So you have 190 students um, in this school um, in sort of that K-8 space. So the first question I have is, so how many teachers is that? I mean, you know, where's a lot of conversation around uh, student-teacher ratios. And so really curious about that component. And then the the other piece um, that I'm also um, curious about, because I, I know our listeners are like, okay, so what's next? You know, is there an aspiration for, for a high school or... Um, you know, what happens to the kids who, who, as they finish eighth grade, where did they go um, within the ecosystem um, that is the Palouse? 
Yeah. So we have, um, I have about 22 staff members Mm -hmm. that um, I oversee at the school and we have, I think 12 teachers that um, certain in certified positions. So we have one teacher per grade. And I would say that no, there's no aspirations for a high school. <laughs> we, we get asked that a lot because there's a small population that would really love to see this model at the high school level. Mm-hmm. Um, however, what we've noticed as educators, though, because we have one class per grade, that by the time that they're in eighth grade, we actually think it's really good for them to move on into that kind of like, as you name it, a larger ecosystem. And we try to intentionally support that transition for those students because they become so tightly knit and are very much like a family as by the time that they leave. And we do think it's a really good experience for them to kind of expand their wings a little bit. Kind of like sending your own kids off to college. It's time for you to go on and try something else now. Yeah, Nothing wrong with that. (laughs) Yeah. What's so special though, is when they do enter high school because they're so highly connected they support each other so incredibly well at the high school level and beyond. And I just find that like so fascinating that they've built such strong relationships here that even during their like challenging times, they may not be in the same like friend group later when they're in the high school, but they can lean on each other at any point in time for support. And they do that quite often. That's fabulous because you don't, that is not something that I hear people talk about all the time. So I'm just thrilled to hear that you've been so successful in teaching these children, you know, how to navigate relationships um, and how community matters that, that, that it translates into what can be a really, really tough time in a kid's life. You know, so many things are changing, um, you know, their, their bodies, their experiences, you know, as they're growing up. Um, and it's everything from learning to, to, to drive and dating and so on. And the list is pretty long, right? And so it's a difficult time to navigate under the best of circumstances. And, and certainly, you know, having your peeps, if you will, uh, to be able to be there and stand by your side is incredibly incredibly meaningful. So I just can't say enough to applaud you for working so hard to ensure that that's happening. That's fabulous. Um, Erin, one of the things that I was really intrigued by, and I will admit super excited about um, when I was perusing the school's website ahead of having this conversation was something that you refer to um, as your adventure programs. And so I want to talk about this because actually uh, the episode that that we, um, we had that aired this week was all about thinking about, you know, using the environment and outdoor education as a, as a foundational premise for work, right? So it's a conversation that certainly at past because our origin story, our premise, we started with applied field programs that we built deliberately for students, right? The adventures to get them out into the world. So this uh, personally just really appeals to me, but I'm super curious about sort of the, the structure that you put around it and why the things you chose to be the adventures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, first I have to say, totally agree with you on that. Um, part of my background is in environmental and yeah. place-based education. And I just feel like there's so much power in getting kids outside and putting them in a new environment and getting to see, you know, different kids show up in different mm-hmm. ways. But our adventure program is something that we are super proud of. Um, and it I, I think like a lot of things in a small sort of scrappy charter school sort of evolved authentically. And then later on, um, we sort of put more sort of system and structure in place. Um, But the idea is that our students K-8 
um, have scaffolded outdoor education experiences throughout their time here. So for kindergartners, that might look like a, a winter half-day hike in our local arboretum um, with a conversation about you know, what does it mean to be resilient when you're outside and you're feeling a little bit chilly. And so then by third or fourth grade, um, you know, they've got snowshoes and we're going for day-long hikes. And by the time they get to middle school, they're trying on downhill skiing and they've built up this skill set on, on how to be outside and enjoy themselves in the winter months. So that's sort of one thread of our adventure program is scaffolding, building outdoor skills. Um, and then I'd say that there's two, two other sort of significant threads. One is that as much as possible, we try to integrate field work into our classroom learning, especially in our expeditions, which you could think of as sort of like the, the deep dive project-based learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and often that field work has an outdoor component. So that's sort of the connection to place part of our adventure program. For example, our middle school students work with UI experts um, to learn about soils throughout mm-hmm. the Palouse um, and visit native Palouse Prairie. So they have a chance to sort of connect place and their environment with their classroom learning. And we feel like that is also a piece of what it means to be adventurous, right? Finding finding connections to your learning in places where you might not expect it or where we don't really traditionally talk about it. And then lastly, we really just sort of recognize, I guess, and this is going back to the the roots of Outward Bound, this, the really powerful experience that a child can have when they're um, with their crewmates, with their classmates mm-hmm. in a different environment. So those outdoor experiences, by the time our students are in um, upper elementary, are overnight experiences. So they're camping or staying in cabins. And by the time they're eighth graders, they're backpacking. Mm -hmm. So they've got this um, really rich way to sort of see each other and see themselves outside of the classroom. And I think that that by the time our students are eighth graders and they're backpacking together, they, I think, really appreciate um, and really don't take for granted the the gift of being together with their friends in the natural world. Um, mm-hmm. And they also have the skills to be successful in that they know how to endure physical challenges, mental challenges. They know how to support each other in those environments. Yeah, that's fabulous because there's nothing quite like getting kids outside. And I love the fact that uh, you're able to integrate, um, you know, some of the components that are coming out of the University of Idaho and I assume even uh, sometimes the University of Washington as well. Um, and tapping into those subject matter experts um, that are going to be sort of beyond the norm, if you will, that students in a traditional classroom setting might have the opportunity to spend some time with. So something beyond just show and tell. I love the fact that you're talking about you know, having these students actually work on a project, meet these professionals and sort of become immersed in whatever that that, that body of work happens to be. That's absolutely fabulous. And uh, kids will remember that. You know, my, my, my kids, um, my, my older two kids grew up in Bozeman, Montana, and they remember all the outside stuff they did, all the research they did tied to the university and the different components to that. And it is incredibly um, meaningful. So I would be remiss if I didn't 
ask two final questions um, of, of both of you ladies. So the first one is, and neither one of you uh, feel free to jump in and answer. You know, even though we 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 are hoping that we are on at least um, a downward sort of trajectory, if you will, from the intensity of being in, immersed in a global pandemic, people around the world are really really curious about how these innovative school programs that we're talking about uh, sort of navigated something that was so incredibly hard on everybody. So, so how, what, what adjustment did the school make um, to be able to continue what you're doing in the midst of the pandemic? I know everybody's like, ah. no, our, I mean, our school was really unique in the region because we intentionally decided to go almost fully remote last year mm-hmm. um, when we saw spikes in our local area, because what we wanted to do is get really good in one way of delivering the education. And we felt like trying to do both of like remote and in person, Mm -hmm. that teachers would be stretched in a way that didn't provide a high quality education. So our school intentionally chose to be remote with some ways of connecting with students outside. So I feel like what we spent our energy on is how do we deliver really engaging lessons um, remotely. And then we also built in our schedule that on Wednesdays that we provided every Wednesday students, these um, outdoor learning experiences that were safe and connected to the learning. Um, Our middle school teachers um, provided learning um, in a greenhouse um, <laughs> with heaters. Um, so we really tried to stay true to our model with um, kind of those outdoor experiences, a rigorous, joyful learning. Um, we did lots of porch visits um, with students. Um, so those we put some intention behind the how we could stay true to our model in the pandemic. Yeah, I really love that. In particular, I I appreciate the recognition of how hard hybrid would be on your your staff, right? You know, and whether it's your 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 teaching faculty or your support staff, the reality, and I've heard this over and over again from all the different places I've I've spoken with or the the schools that at past that we work with, um, the hybrid approach was exhausting. And I and I, I love the fact that you you recognize and were able to acknowledge that right up front and and to make your your pivots appropriately. So bravo for being able to figure that out. Um, I'm sure it wasn't easy within the ecosystem of what the other schools were doing in many ways. There's a lot of pressure to conform, but nonetheless, an important choice. So my my final question is, um, what next? Right. So. What do you envision? And it doesn't have to be any secrets, you know, sauce or sort of pieces, but but as you sort of think about the work that you're doing, you're engaging in this this academic year, which are you remote? I guess I should ask that question. Are you remote this year as well? Or are you back in person in school this year? Yeah, we're fully in person currently. In person. Okay, yay. Hopefully everything holds and everybody's able to, to continue to do that. So the, with, with that in mind, then, so so what does this year bring? I mean, if you're a student and a family, what what is something that's coming or coming in, in the future that you're working on that is, um, it could be a small thing, but people, that's always one of the questions that I get after people listen. And, you know, for reasons I'll never understand, they email me instead of reaching out to, to 
to you, even though we provide all of your, 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 your reach out information, um, is, is really about, okay, this is really, really cool. So what's the next really great, cool thing that's going to be coming out of the Palouse Prairie School? <laughs> that's a great question. And I guess um, it's a tricky one to mm-hmm. answer because we're still in a pandemic. So our big focus right now, in particular, I talked about like what we provided students, but what we really tried to focus on last year and we continue the focus is staff resilience mm-hmm. so that we're sustaining our current highly qualified educators so that when we shift back into like a normal school year that we still have that group of individuals at our school. Um, So, you know, I think a couple of things that we're thinking about as some long-term goals really is um, how we are really supporting all students, including our highest needs students Mm -hmm. um, that are one... I mean, we have a lot of kids that have suffered from this pandemic and continue to suffer. So we're putting a lot of support and energy and thinking about the social emotional learning. And I know all schools in the in the nation are. And again, our staff resilience and really focusing on some of our subpopulations that really need that additional support. So we're putting a lot of like time and energy and effort into that. Um, I don't know if that's fancy or sexy in any way, but it definitely um, is where we're putting a lot of our energy. Yeah. I, I think at the end of the day, it's all about what you need. Right. And so it, that's going to be fancy and sexy, if you will, because it's the thing that you need, you know, moving forward to, to be, to your point, to be sustainable and to be successful, to continue with the great work and the mission um, that your school has. Erin, did you want to add anything? Uh, yeah, that? I just, I wanted to say, I think that really speaks to Janiel's wisdom as our school leader, being able to say, actually, this is not the year for mm-hmm. the new fancy thing. And I mean, we always have ideas, right? Mm -hmm. Of like, oh, we can refine this program or we want to scaffold the overnight experiences for adventure even more. We want to integrate more with what's happening um, in the community. But I think the the move to say like, but not right yet, because the reality is like, this is a new iteration of what we are facing as educators during a pandemic. It's not that it's gone or really even dwindling. It's that we're seeing now like, oh, what was the experience of our students last year and how are they showing up and what are their needs? So I think mm-hmm. for, for Janiel to be able to say like, we can take a pause on some of these like really fun, invigorating innovations that we want to do in order to just make space for our students and for our staff crew to kind of just check in on where we're mm-hmm. all at and what we need in the moment, both academically and emotionally and socially, um, I think just speaks volumes to who she is as a leader. And like she said, the sustainability of our school long-term. Yeah, absolutely. And I do appreciate you adding that that piece in, Erin. The reality of it is that we will be feeling from the perspective of education, uh, the after effects of the last 18 months that we've all gone through for many, many years to come, right? Um, and so it, it is not something that is going to be a blip on our radar and then everything just moves on. It, it's going to move on, uh, but there are going to be a lot of aspects of it that are going to change, not 
just the way we do education, but uh, to, to the point that both of you have made repeatedly throughout this conversation, the way we think about what's important in education. So I truly, truly appreciate that. So ladies, I want to thank you both for making time to share the story of the Palouse Prairie School with us today and um, to, to make the time for the conversation. So thank you so much. It was our pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's fun to talk about something that we care about so deeply. <laughs> oh, absolutely. There's nothing better than uh, than, than sharing the joys and in, in others' passions and the work that they do. So I appreciate that very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin. And join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.